Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, so we're here to become better habitat managers. Guys, we have a great episode for you here today. It is early September, and we have Mr. Bill Friedrich out of northern Michigan from the Singing Hills Deer Camp. So Bill is a friend of mine. I met him on Facebook a few years ago. Um, He's written a few books, one in particular that caught my attention on his 600 plus acres in northern Michigan, the deer camp, the history, uh, pretty much everything that I care about and love uh, with with my passion is, is deer camp. So when he offered to send me a book, I, I said yes, and, and that's how we kind of got chatting. So this book I've been reading is at my camp uh, in northern Michigan, and he's written a couple other books too, but he does habitat work and hosts a history of tradition at the, the Singing Hills Camp there in northern Michigan. So awesome episode. Guys, I really enjoyed this. Uh, just it really, you know, hit my strings, and, and I just had a great time relaxing and talking old stories with Bill um, here today. So we, we kind of talked about some habitat work, different food plots, different timber stuff he's done, um, some unique food plot fencing techniques where they fenced in a food plot, uh, which may or may not have worked. Um, some nice eight point buck stories, but um, just a really cool, traditional, conventional Michigan deer camp type interview type story guys if you're not from michigan or or pa new york they have some of this too and i know a lot of other states have this too you guys have your own camps um but up here it's 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 dates way back and i'm sure it does there too but i'm only i only know what i know which is in my area and uh, we have a rich tradition here and I'm, I'm very happy to share it with you guys with this cool story so we also talk about some different you know best habitat projects worst habitat projects um Talk about the camp. We talk about a poaching story where somebody poached a 500 pound plus Michigan black bear on Bill's land um, and he tracked him down. Very great episode. So hang in there, guys. Cool episode. Really glad you guys are tuning back into the Habitat podcast. Once again, hopefully your food plots are in. Hopefully you've been getting the rain. I know some folks are still dry. Illinois, uh, West Michigan, um, some other parts that I've been hearing. We've been blessed enough to get some rain this fall. Uh, thank God. And um our plots are, are looking pretty good over here in uh, eastern Michigan, but uh, up in northern Michigan, northern 70, that plot could use some rain. And when I was up there last, which was a couple of days ago, I hung a few new cameras, some mock scrapes, got drenched, um, soaking wet out in the rain, which washed all my scent away while I was out there. I did that on purpose. Uh, and our food plot got some more rain up there. So hopefully you guys are getting the rain. Hopefully you're ready. Your stands are hung. Your Exodus cameras are set. We are ready to go. All right, so let's get into it with Bill. I want to thank everybody who's left us a great review on Habitat Podcast iTunes or Apple Podcast app on your phone. Every iPhone has this app. It's very easy to leave a five-star review and write something nice. I'm sending more decals out uh, ASAP. I have a bunch more decals in today. And even, you know, as fast as I can get these decals out, you guys are leaving awesome reviews. And I really appreciate that. Um, I think it was Bill reached out to me earlier today about another great review. And sir, your decal will be in the mail extremely soon. So I do appreciate that. Guys, thanks again for coming back to the Habitat Pockets. Let's thank the rest of our partners before we get into this episode. I want to thank Vitalized Seed Company, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Packer Max Cult Packers, Morse Nursery, Acres.com, Down Burst Cedars, and United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. One more quick thing before we get this rolling. Guys, Doug at Downburst Cedars and I are working together to give him some feedback on his brand new cedar. So there have been hundreds of you that have went and checked out um, you know, his website and give us some feedback. There's a brand new survey at habitatpodcast.com under the Habitat Journal where you can take a survey, leave feedback on what you think about the Downburst Cedar. And we're going to give away a brand new Exodus Outdoor Gear Rival Cellular Camera. 180 bucks shipping to somebody who fills out the survey and tells us their feedback on what they see when they watch the video of the website and the survey. We're trying to help Doug with this company and get this figured out and really help build this, this product for, for Doug and, and get this off the ground. So 
Guys, check it out. Habitatpodcast.com, Habitat Journal. There's a link in the show notes below. Take the survey. Chance to win a brand new saw can. All right, now let's get into it with Bill in Northern Michigan. Guys, I want to talk to you about Acres.com. Acres.com is a partner of the show here at Habitat Podcast, and they have an awesome, very useful website for landowners and land enthusiasts out there, or even people in the land market. So it's a great guide for landowners and buyers. There's a free version. All you have to do is sign up at acres.com. It's a research platform that puts you in easy access to listings, sold data, and insights, 10 different layers of insights, Um, you know, crop history, aerial imagery, uh, floodplain, soil types, um, vegetation, all these items are on there. So What it helps me do is reveal things that I can't see if I'm not on the property there. Historic land use, potential risks, maybe. You know, know your regional land market with this program and just evaluate land like you're a professional. I've been using it a lot lately to generate reports on certain parcels I'm interested in purchasing. There's a, there's a way you can generate like an 11 page report that shows you everything you need to know about that parcel. So when you go out and walk it, you have sometimes more information than the realtor. There's also a premium membership at acres.com. You can compare listings, sold listings, um, property owner lookup, look up the tax ID, parcel numbers, everything you need to know. And again, with these reports, I love generating these reports from acres.com to help me become a smarter buyer, a better land enthusiast, or even if you're in the market, a land professional. Guys, check out acres.com. Let them know Habitat Podcast sent you. Sign up for free today and start exploring one of the best land use websites that I've worked with. All right, Bill, and it looks like you are up at camp, you said, huh? Yep, and in uh, three or four days up here, and uh, it's been like 90 degrees out here, so it's not really the ideal weather for for hunting camp, but uh, you got to go when you get a chance. Yeah, I hear you. I'm actually up right now, too. I had to come cut the grass and uh, take care of a few things up here as well, so... Your place yeah. looks like a, a little more decorated. It looks great. Yeah, it's been here a long time. And uh, um, it's, you know, it's a situation where it was actually built in 1939 by my grandfather. And so uh, generations of the Friedrich family been coming up here for years. That's awesome. Bill, why don't you start off? Give us a little introduction on, on you and um, where you're from, your background, and uh, we'll kick this thing off. Sure. Um, Bill Friedrich. I um I was originally born um up here in this area Roger City Michigan and um due to the unfortunate death of my mother when I was very young I actually ended up growing up in uh, Dearborn um with my grandmother and uh her son my uncle and went to school down there and when I finished school I went on to get a degree in accounting at Western Michigan and went on and got an MBA at Eastern Michigan and as far as work, I've worked. I worked a lot of different places. I've worked uh, everywhere from. Uh, oh, I started out summer jobs doing swabbing the deck of Great Lakes freighters, uh, working as a deckhand. From there, I went on to. I was refereeing kids' baseball games. Uh, I worked for. Once I got my college degree, I worked for United Technologies. I worked in auto racing for a company called McLaren Engines. Um, I went on to work in mortgage banking, um, finished up my career uh, working for a company called EDS, which was um, down in the Renaissance Center in Detroit. And uh, um, then from there, I took we got an early buyout. I took that early buyout and uh, it gives me more time to come up to camp from time to time. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I I was uh, reading on the the back of your book I have here, um, McLaren McLaren Engines. What did you do over there in the race car world? My son is absolutely obsessed with racing and race cars right now. So I have to ask. I was in my my, uh, 20s at that point, and it was probably the coolest job a 25 or or six-year-old kid could have. I basically ran the front office and and took care of all that. But we housed the uh, racing teams. Uh, Johnny Rutherford was the Indianapolis car driver at the time. And uh, we also um, were running BMWs in what was called back then the IMSA series. Um, So the race crews were kind of cool. They all come in from uh, most of the guys in the pits are from England or Australia or New Zealand. And they come here and they stay. And uh, we had the engine building for the McLaren engines there. Um, A lot of dynamometer work where they put the engines on these machines and 
run them to see if they could break them. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we used to get to go to all the races and uh, there was a lot of camaraderie amongst a bunch of guys that were all pretty close in age. So I, I really enjoyed that job. Uh, it probably wasn't like something with a huge career in front of it, but as far as just a fun job to to do something where you got a chance to really see what racing is about, it was it was great. I was I was lucky enough to go tour the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway last week, so that was my first time seeing that place and um, you know the brickyard, the whole deal. It was really cool. I can uh, and they had some BMWs they were testing out while I was there, so I got to see some cars race, which was neat. One of the things I always tell people is I I was not a race fan. I, I'm a sports fan but not a race fan until i started working there and you know anybody will tell you that goes to these races you just can't appreciate the speed of the cars and how you know driving at 200 plus miles an hour they're about three inches off the bump the car in front of them um it's it's just it feels so much better when you're at the actual racetrack as opposed to uh watching it on tv where you really just don't get that feel yeah that makes sense to me <laughs> So growing up in the southeast part of the state, how in the heck did you end up getting a deer camp up in Rogers City area? Um, I know there's a lot of club country up there, and and I've hunted in Lewiston, so not quite as close, but um, beautiful area up there. Yeah, um, like I, I said, I was I was actually born up here and, and lived up here till I was about three years old. Um, and my grandfather um, ran a lumber company up here. It started out as an old grist mill, and he, he then got into the lumber business. And my dad ended up working for him. And so he used to acquire land up here during the 30s um, in the Depression. And a lot of people up here, they didn't have money. So what they would do is they would barter. So part of the land that we have here in our hunting camp was my grandfather bartering for a 40 acres in return for enough lumber to build a barn or something like that. And so he would acquire land. And um, then in the 60s, my uh, dad and his brothers acquired a, another 120 acres. So it was always been in my family. And that's, that's my earliest memories in life are out here. I, you know, I can, I've got pictures on the wall here of me catching trout out of the pond here in front uh, when I was four or five years old. And uh, so I've been coming up here my whole life and um, we have uh, 613 acres up here right now. And um, like I say, it's been, we're like literally going on the fourth generation of uh, a family here. And, and also we have a number of friends that have hunted here for years. Some of them, their fathers hunted with my grandfather, my dad, and, uh, and their sons are here. And now the sons of their sons are here. So there's quite a history here that uh, that really is rich. That's so cool. It's like the quintessential deer camp. I mean, I'm I've been reading reading your book. I have it right here. Um, I keep it at my camp up here, so it's like perfect spot for it, right on the table here. And you know, just deer camp is the best thing ever to me. So let's let's hear a little bit more about um, what you describe as Singing Hills Camp. I know uh, we'll talk about the book too. I want to, you know, that's kind of how we met. Um, and I want to hear about the book and whatnot as well. But let's hear about the camp. You said 613 acres. Uh, was it always that large? or what did it start as prior to some of the bartering? Yeah, we had we picked up about, like I say, in the 60s, about an extra 140 acres. Um, and that was a situation where my dad and his brothers found out a neighbor had some property for sale. And there was, um, there's an outfitter that hunts um, in this area. And he had desperately been trying to get this property uh, this 140 acres. And my dad and his brothers found out about it and swooped in and picked it up before they could. Wow. And uh, they weren't too happy about that. But uh, it's turned out probably some of the best uh, land on this whole property. But um, yeah, it's our property is is a little bit different than some we have out of the 600 acres, we probably have 200 acres of it that is real thick white cedar swamp. And swamp is not unusual at all up here, of course, but to have that much of it. So we have a lot of critters like bears and things like that that tend to hang out in there. And we have more than our share. Um, and then the rest of the property tends to be rolling hardwoods, uh, a lot of maple, a lot of oak, um, and uh, a lot of a lot of small hills. Um, we do a lot of food plotting, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. And uh, you know, ours tend to be smaller in size. We don't have big tracts of open areas to do you know five acre food plots and things like that. But um, we've had this, like I say, we've had it for for so many years that uh, um, we've just been fortunate enough to be able to continue to. 
take advantage of the property. And that that cabin that you're in right there, uh, I can see in the background. Tell me a little bit about that cabin, and and I guess what what's the what's the feel for everybody who's listening and cannot see this? You know, how would you describe it? Well, it was built um, by a hermit. Um, there was a man named Frank Cole who built this. And he was a guy that lived out in the woods and somehow was an acquaintance of my grandfather. And he was known around the area as kind of a master cabin builder. So he took the lead on the cabin. My dad as a kid helped out and his brothers helped out. But it's it's all natural logs. It's, um, it's you know, chinking in between. It's hardwood floors. Um, inside, it's pretty modern. I mean, we have, we have uh, bathroom, shower, an air conditioning unit. A, uh, um, we have uh, propane heat, um, so it's it's really nice. We got internet, we got we got cable here. We pretty much had to have all the convenience of home. In fact, we always joke about it. We always say that. I got to go up to camp and rough it, you know, and, and a lot of us come here and it's like, heck, this place is nicer than what I got at home, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so we're pretty lucky about that. But if you walk in, you kind of get the flavor of the old camp, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it always reminds me of, like the old ones you see the Adirondack camps from the New York area and stuff like that. Um, most of the people that come into our camp um, really like it because of the fact that it's, it's got that original feel to it. And yet inside it's, it's quite nice. Perfect. And you mentioned going back to the uh the singing hills camp the the land itself 614 acres let's talk about some of your your food plots your habitat projects i mean this is a habitat podcast after all we should probably cover some of that um your your food plots how long have you guys been doing food plots how far back do they date um when i was um when i was when i was a boy you could go back 50 years it was occasionally they would put in a rye field and that was the first and only food plotting that was done out here and I know in talking to my dad, they didn't feel like the land was capable of, of doing much in the way of food plotting. And food plotting also wasn't very big back then. But we really got into it, um, the guys out here, I'm going to say about 15 years ago. And um, we all started getting educated. We started learning about the food plot craze. We started, you know, doing soil testing and realizing that, you know, we did have the capability to do some things out here. So we've actually been doing food plots for, I, I'm going to say those 15 years, and we probably are doing 12 to 15 acres right now uh, every year um, in different things. Okay. So that's, that's a good chunk of food plotting. Um, how, how are you guys putting these plots? saying how big are these plots and are, when you know tell me about where they're located on the property okay the the first one or the biggest plot we have is uh about three acres and it used to be located right in the center of the property and um, i know this isn't quite habitat but it it's pretty related to it and that is one of the things we did is we had traditionally the road to from our camp went right through the middle of the property to get to the cabin and it went right through the middle of this field. And so one of the things that I did a number of years back, uh, probably about eight years ago, was we rerouted our roads so that instead of coming through the middle of the property, we come down the edges of it and we stay out of uh, food plots. But so our biggest one is about three acres. Um, we probably plant 20 other plots on the on the property that go anywhere from a third of an acre to two acres. So it's a variety of mainly smaller plots. Um, some of them we cut out of the woods with dozers and stuff over the years. Some are just natural openings. Um, some are travel corridors, long, narrow strips where uh, where we usually hunt on the edges of it. And um, so we have a little bit of a variety, but there's nothing there's nothing big like a, a five or ten acre plot on this property. It's it's too heavily wooded. I mean, I'd even I'd even say that you know one third to up to two acres is is considered sometimes larger in some of our our Michigan hunting at least I mean you know how how on edge our our deer are so you know having these big open fields doesn't always behoove us I like the fact that you're adding is you know a lot of acreage per the 613 you have a lot of a lot of land to quote unquote get food plots into so when you did the the cutting out of the woods with the dozers, tell me about that. Where'd you get the dozer? Who operated it? How much work did it take? How long did it take? Because I'm selfishly going to do that out back here pretty soon. So um, first off, the it's it's interesting where we got it from. We actually got the 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 DNR to pay for it. Um, what it is 
um, up here in the northeast part of the state, um, in order to combat to TB, they've uh, put together some grant programs that you can apply for. And w- with my background in finance and, and a lot of that, I'm, I've been able to secure these grants um, pretty effectively for a number of years. So we get um, we get grants. Uh, one is called the Plan Grant, which is a, a private land grant that you can get. There's another one up here that they uh, they call the HIP grant which is habitat improvement but basically they're they're implemented by MDARD and they're they're available to landowners to improve their property and the real goal is to pull deer off of some of the uh farmers fields and the crops and to spread them out so that they're not close nose to nose and and spreading TB so um a lot of our food plots um i think we've gotten these grants probably for 7 or 8 years straight now um a lot of our food plots are come where we'll we'll hire a dozer and then pay for it and then they'll reimburse us at the end um as far as how long it takes and how it works um we have a friend of ours who is a dozer operator for one of the companies in Alpena, Michigan, and he's a magician on this dozer. So, I mean, this this guy can do more work in two hours with a dozer than, than a lot of people could in a day. So literally, I mean, he can create um, probably a half acre food plot in three or four hours. And so we've had him in here, um, I don't know, I think, you know, probably seven or eight straight years and done different things with it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a good way to do it. And especially when you can get somebody to help pay for some of the funding. No kidding. And when you're yeah, that's that's extremely interesting. But and that makes sense for those who don't know, TB is tuberculosis. And that that year, there's a zone up there where it's it's permanently in Michigan, I guess you will in the herd up there I've, I've hunted that area um and even though with all the the unlimited doe tags there's still a bunch of deer um but we'll, we'll get to that i guess um when you're bulldozing these plots out are you removing all the stumps and everything too um and then after you get those out are you using a rototiller are you dealing with roots everywhere what's that look like um what we're doing is if unless there's some really really large trees um we'll get everything he'll he'll pop the roots out he He'll come at it from the side. He's he's got a couple of techniques that that uh, you know if you've got a tree, I don't know, I'm going to say under 12 inches, he can push that over no problem. If you've got a great big one and you really want it out, he'll get it out for you. Um, but it becomes kind of a time management thing. If I've got him here for a day, do I want him to spend one hour taking you know a, a great big white pine stump out or something like that? So in a lot of cases, um, we might leave some like one stump in the middle of the field if if we felt like it was uh not going to hurt us um so you know it's um once he does it um usually what i'll do is i have a i have a john deere uh 790 tractor which is kind of a small utility tractor it's like a 25 horse um but we have a tiller on the back and usually i can just go through and till that ground a couple times and by the time it's ready to go um so it's really not it's really not a tremendous amount of work once he clears that um for me to be able to turn it into something and you know, so then we'll do some soil sampling and try to figure out what the soil looks like. It's pretty consistent up here. We've got sandy loam soil. Um, we we have um, in some cases where we've planted food plots for years and years, going back to my dad. A lot of it is phosphorus poison because the guys would throw triple nineteen fertilizer on it every year, year after year. And so, pretty much, if you take any spot on this land, they're they're all potassium deficient. You know, so you need a lot of potash, um, nitrogen, depending on what you're growing or not growing. But uh, but we got to be very careful with the uh, with the uh, phosphorus because uh, if it's a new plot, we'd be probably fine. But the in the old days, they didn't they didn't realize that fertilizer wasn't all the same, and they just popped triple nineteen everywhere. Yep, yep, I've heard of that before, and that's that's. Uh... People still do that, you know, so I know guys who still put out 300 pounds of triple 19 per acre, you know, so. And I'm a living proof of uh, what it looks like when for 25 or 30 straight years that's happened. And then you do your first soil sample and they can barely get a reading on it because the uh, the phosphorus is so high. Oh, man. So what do you guys, um, what do you guys plant a lot of now? Do you do a lot of brassicas, some clovers? What do you guys plant these days? Um, I would say all of the above. Uh, there probably isn't a whole lot that we haven't planted 
plan it out here, but we've certainly learned some lessons on what to plant where and what'll work and what won't work. Um, we do plant brassicas. Um, we tend to try to keep the brassicas in the lower areas because so much of our soil is kind of uh, um, fairly dry and fairly sandy and, and the brassicas just don't do well in that. So we, we got brassica fields usually along the edges of the swamp and, and along the areas where they don't get quite as much sun and they, they seem to do a lot better. It's actually better soils down there too. When we get up into the um, up into the fields that tend to be uh, farther away from the low areas of the property, we tend to fix to stick to grain mixes of various types. Um, it might be something with rye, triticale, uh, winter wheat, throws you know beans. Uh, um, so so mixes like that. Um, I was kind of looking at just before this uh, at the vitalized seed mixes, and it's a really cool mixes that that they offer. Yeah, and uh, and things like that. Um, but we planted corn. We've got soybeans. Um, uh, we've had some really great years with them, and we've had some failures with them. Um, this year was kind of a failure with our soybeans because uh, we uh, we screwed up and didn't uh, protect them well enough. And uh, um, but um, pretty much everything. We have clover in here. We have uh, everything from Whitetail Institute's clover. Uh, we have Alice White clover. We have uh, Bursim. We have, you name it, we probably have it somewhere along the edges of the property. So real quick before I get off the food plots, how many deer per square mile do you think you guys have where you're at? Any idea? It, you know, it's funny. I've I've talked to the to the DNR wildlife biologists, and uh, I don't think there's anything harder to try to get out of those folks than than that um and of course i understand it partially because um it's it's very so much I and mean, we're in presque Isle county and generally speaking because of the liberal doe tags and that it doesn't have an extraordinarily high count of deer we're not in an ag area so we we don't have a lot of ag around us but we'll take surveys different years like we've done things where we've we've um put game cameras out for a certain period of time. And we've also um, done things where we've taken all of our hunters and opening day of rifle season, everybody counts the deer they see at five o'clock. And so we've done all kinds of crazy stuff to try to get that number. But I don't know, if you were to ask me, I would guess we have, I don't know, we probably have a hundred deer on this property at any point in time. And so if we got 600 acres, that gives you a sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, appreciate that. That's a that's a cool idea. Have everybody count at the same time when you're out in the woods. That's interesting. Um, so with, with all these deer and all your food plots, would you say that food plots are are some of your best habitat projects, or do you have any that are that are better over the years? Um, there's there's certainly some of our best because you know if you think about deer and they want cover and they want uh, and they want food. In our case, food is the number one thing here. We have we have a ton of cover and um, no deer has this problem in this area finding a place to bed down or or even a sanctuary where they'd be safe. Um, but food is the key for us. And if we didn't have food plots in, um, I think we would have a lot less deer. Our neighbors don't do a lot of food plotting. And so I think that's why we tend to have a lot better hunting here than some of our, you know, some of our adjoining uh, properties. Um, the neighbors that we have, um, we have an outfitter on one end and they do, uh, they do hunts and things like that, but their business is down. So they're not doing a lot of, a lot of work on our edge of our property these days. Um, so yeah, food plots are number one for us, but we've done some other things too. Um, one is we, we used one of these grants one year to build a travel corridor um, across our property. And this travel corridor goes probably a mile in length. And we had the dozer come in and, and clear uh, a winding corridor. It's probably, oh, I would say 20 feet across. And it just winds through our property. You can plant it with, uh, with seed. And it's a great place to hunt because if the deer are traveling that travel corridor, you can set up a stand and have, you know, basically hunt almost any wind unless it's coming in from behind you. And so we planted trees along the edge of it. And um, so that was a pretty successful project that I think really enhanced our property. Um, we've we've also done a lot of things like licking branches and water holes. We've had really good luck with licking branches on trails and things. Um, Water holes, not so much, but probably that's because we have so much water and there's so much swamp in this area 
that deer aren't really short of water. So we've done, you know, I've done a lot of that. Um, this year, my son and I undertook a project where we're trying to put in uh, sandpoint wells. I don't know if you're familiar with those at all, but uh, we basically um, drilled uh, three or four of these and uh, we had mixed success with them. Some of them worked pretty well and some of them not so well. But um, the idea was to be able to get water on some of these food plots because we tend to get a lot of drought out here in the summers. And uh, we figured if we could get water on some of these plots, we would have even better crops. So we've been playing with that a lot. Sure. And yeah, I'm, I'm a little familiar with them. I believe my dad put, tried to put one in at our house uh, where, where I was growing up. Do you just bang those into the ground or how does how do they work exactly? And how far do you have to go down? Um, we 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 bang them into the ground. Um, we got up. There's um there's a local store here that has a pounder that you can that you can rent. Um, it depends where you're at. Like the problem on the ones that didn't work, the problem we kept running into is we couldn't get them down deep enough because we were running into um, limestone. There's a a ton of limestone in this area actually the biggest limestone quarry in the world is in roger city and uh so you have to find a spot where you can where you can sink the point in but um usually you have to get it in about 12 feet and that'll be enough if you start in a low area so what we learned is you know you don't want to go in and start um in a high area because then you're gonna have to go way deeper but if you can find areas where maybe they're standing water for most of the year uh, maybe you're on the edge of a of a lowland or a swamp. Um, that's where you're going to be successful with the, with these. So we watched a lot of videos about it, and um, we gave it a try. And we have one on the property that's working real well, um, and we have a couple more that uh, we just haven't been able to get deep enough. Um, so we're probably going to have to pick another spot. But we're going to keep playing with it and see if we can if we can make it work because the idea of being able to irrigate some of these crops is uh, is pretty enticing to us. Introducing downburst seeders. Guys, downburst seeders deliver precision small seed spreading for all of your food plot and screening needs. They are lightweight, durable, and easy to maneuver. I met Doug up at his house and we tested a downburst seeder in his garage, reweighed the amount of seed, did the math, and they are extremely accurate. If you're trying to plant small seeds, clovers, brassicas, rape, you know, it takes the guesswork out of cover cropping. I mean, the proper seed rate for alfalfa, switchgrass, any other small seeds. Check them out today at downburstseeders.com. We do have a code if you're a Habitat podcast listener. There's HP10. Eliminate the seed waste. It's ground wheel driven. Very accurate. Very light. Aluminum. Can throw it in the bed of your truck. Check them out, guys. We already have listeners purchasing these products. Doug at downburstseeders.com. We'll be happy to answer any questions you have. They are literally a piece of art made here in Northern Michigan. That's After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's super interesting. I don't think we've talked about that much on the podcast before 240 episodes in. Um, once you get the well in. You hadn't heard of 
<laughs> I don't. I mean, but once you get the the well in, what's what's next? Is there a pump on it? Do you have an irrigation system? What's that look like? Yeah, we bought we bought a, a pump uh, basically at Harbor Freight. Um, the one that's really nice is a, a trash pump, and that one costs us probably two hundred and fifty dollars. And then basically, you know, you have a an input um, a hose. And we attached uh, four sprinklers to it, and uh, so we were probably able, um, probably able to irrigate uh, half acre at a time for us, which you know, for most of our plots, that's that's big enough. Um, and um, we also have another one where um, we had a water hole, and so basically we've just been drawn out of that water hole, and it tends to we can run it for a couple hours and irrigate out of the water hole. Um, and then when we're done with that, we'll wait a few days and it'll fill up again. So, you know, we've been able to do it both by the sandpoint being down in the ground. And then, like I say, we just throw the, the trash pump basically right out, pull it right out of the water hole that uh, we dug a few years ago. And would you say you're seeing a good difference uh, with the plots being irrigated? Are you seeing a noticeable difference or is it not enough? Or And, you know, it's like it's not so much how much water we can put down because you know one good rain can do more than we could do and that's my point yeah but but it's like every summer it seems like somewhere around late june through july there's that three or four week period where we don't get a drop of rain and by being able to do a little bit of watering it makes it, it makes a difference you know maybe our maybe our crops aren't really growing a lot during that period but they're not shriveling up and dying like they were before so it really the way i see it is it gets us through some of these really bad periods gets enough water on them to maintain but you know it's never going to replace a, a good all summer rain where you get a half inch of rain sure Sure. No, that's great info, Bill. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, what, what would you say some of the projects that you've done with the worst outcome would be? We've heard about some successes here with food plots and irrigation, but what about ones that totally didn't work, wasted time? Um, you know, probably some of your listeners will, will think that, that, uh, or their experiences are much different. But um, I uh, went a number of years ago to a uh, certain habitat guru who uh, was teaching us how to make uh, uh, buck beds and deer beds and things like that. And we came back from that all fired up. We were going to make buck beds all over the property and attract every big buck in the county. Um, what we quickly learned is when you have um, as much heavy cover, timber, um, moderate deer populations, uh, they're not looking for another place to lay down. And so we we spent a lot of time building bucking dough beds and and um, limited success with it. I mean, do they use them? Yes, they do. But I don't think we have one more deer on the property because we created these beds and the amount of work that went in them would be so much better used putting in some more food plots or doing something else. So I would, you know, I would say that that was one of the things um, I mentioned earlier, water holes um, haven't been successful for us. We went out and bought a bunch of those uh, tractor supply uh, 80 gallon tubs and buried them in the ground and um, put them near some of our stands and things like that. Very limited usage. And again, there might be on a different property, that might be a great thing to have. But on our property, it really, it isn't necessary because they have so much water that they can get to. Um, well, let's see, we've learned things like trying to plant beans on too small of acreage. Um, they just come in and just devastate them. So, you know, a lot of work goes in and put a half acre uh, plot of beans in and the, the deer are just all over them up here. So we learned that uh, that's probably not a good use of our time. Um, so we've had, uh, but we even tried one this year. Um, this was my son's idea. Um, he planted a, a relatively small plot of beans. And then he had, through work, he had a bunch of uh, surveyor's tape. So he took and basically strung surveyor's tape around the beans but he didn't just string it around the outside of the beans. He basically made a maze in the middle with tape going everywhere. He put stakes in. He had it so that you, you couldn't even walk through that stuff. And his his uh, attempt was to see is, can I keep deer out of this out of these beans with 
just making this look so stupid that they'll probably uh, uh, <laughs> want to avoid it. And it was working great. I mean, we had the beans were growing like crazy and uh, the deer were staying out of them. We had other parts of the field that they were able to, to browse on. And just two weeks ago, I was talking to him about how great this has worked and I was surprised. And we came up here uh, this time and the deer have been in there and they just devastated the beans. They knocked the tape down. It was basically just once they wanted to get in there bad enough and they realized that there was better beans in there than there was in the rest of that field so we put that one down as a uh as a as a, a mess up too so <laughs> we probably have more stories of things that haven't worked than uh but have worked but we still managed to take some nice deer off of this property and uh and and we're pretty fortunate well let's let's hear about that i want to uh you know kind of talk as if you know november's here and uh you guys are getting camp are you up at camp do you you bow hunt a lot do you then go into gun season what's what's deer camp look like and then let's hear a story or two on some some nice deer um yeah for us um deer camp is uh is is starts out with with uh bow bow season and we have some pretty avid bow hunters up here um so we'll be up you know typically a couple three times um in october now I used to actually live up here. My wife and I had built a home on Lake Huron and Hammond Bay. We lived up here for about eight years. So when I was living up here, um, I could spend more time. But we moved back downstate, um, grandkids and that kind of stuff. So typically my son and I'll be up here and there's other people out here that are that are pretty avid bow hunters and we'll we do we do quite well actually with bow hunting out here. It's a, it's, it's again, it's because I think we have better habitat than the neighbors. And that's what I've always said. I even mentioned it in, in one of my books about, I don't have to compete with guys in ag land in Southern Michigan who can grow crops way better than we ever can up here. I just have to compete with people in this area. And um, so we almost always have more crops, better food. So bow hunting is, is really pretty good here. Um, I, I usually um, am pretty successful. I got a, an eight point buck last year um, bow hunting, which is pretty good for us up here. That's, that's what we hunt. We don't, we don't hunt anything less than eight points. Um, and we try to shoot a lot of does if we can, because we're trying to get our uh, ratios improved all the time. Um, now gun hunting is a little bit different. I have relatives that are involved in this camp that come in from out of state and it's just a fun time. And we will fill the camp with guys, um, over the years, we've had as few as four and actually two on the COVID year. We we basically shut the camp down and my son and I were the only two here. But other than that, we'll usually have nine to 12 people here. Um, lately, we've had about nine or 10 the last uh, seven or eight years. And it's just a fun time. I mean, everybody knows how much uh, how much they enjoy opening opening day and everybody's upbeat and uh, camps are are visiting each other and it's it's just a it's just a lot of fun um but you know like i say we'll harvest um a good year for us up here is probably half the guys get an eight pointer you know that's 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 a good deer for us yeah that's that's awesome buck is, a, is a nice buck up here 130 is kind of the top of the line um on our property okay let's hear let's hear the story about your your bow hunting buck last year your eight point um it, it was probably a a, a pretty a pretty easy story um, to tell, but it, it it essentially was, we had a stand that um, it was a ladder stand that my son had set up. And I told him it was one of the worst places on the property to put a stand. And he and his um, wife, Kelly uh, hunted. It was a two person. They hunted it the first year and he missed, he missed a nice buck in this, in it. And so we had to tease him about uh, practicing and shooting. And then he went out last year and he missed another buck there. So I uh, bought him a new uh, bow side for Christmas and uh, a new spot hog site. And, and so uh, hopefully uh, he's practicing. In fact, he was up here uh, just a couple of days ago and he was, he was definitely out shooting me. So I'm pretty sure he's, uh, he's fixed that. But um, so anyway, he was done hunting it and uh, I, I snuck in there for a the morning and uh, managed to get an eight point and turned out that uh, I hit him a little bit back and the deer went quite a ways. And one of my buddies was up here, who's really an excellent hunter. And, uh, and he and I were, were trying to find any, um, any sign of uh, blood to be able to track this deer. And there just wasn't a lot. And we're walking through a bedding area, just basically looking for anything. I knew I 
I knew I'd hit the deer, but but why why aren't we seeing blood? And he finds some tracks going across one of our road that looked like a, an animal was moving quickly. And he goes, oh, I think I got, I think I got the track here. And I'm laughing at him. I go, how many deer do you think we kicked out of that bedding area just walking in there? You know, I said, we still don't have any blood. And he's like, well, I'm going to follow it anyway. So he follows that track and damned if he didn't start to find blood. All in all, the deer probably went no more than 100 yards, but it was a twisty, turny, um, through the thickest stuff you can imagine uh, type of a type of a trail. And so, um, you know, that was a nice morning. It was uh, it was beautiful fall morning and uh, we're able to recover that one. And, and what um, what type of area was this this stand in? And what type of what time of, in October was this hunt? It was um, second week. And um, the this was on a one of these little small, probably a third of an acre food plots that we had up here and it's right along the edge of that travel corridor that I was talking about where the uh um winds basically a mile through our property and um early morning um you know like a lot of them he comes in um he comes in not quite downwind kind of quartering in and you know that's one of the things that that I've certainly learned and a lot of other bow hunters do is used to set up so that you know, you always had the perfect wind, but when you have the perfect wind, the deer are likely coming in from behind you. So if if you uh, if you have have a crosswind or you're able to uh, to set up your stand so that they can't get behind you, you're you're in much better shape. But he came in crosswind. Must have been really close to getting me, but he didn't. And um, he came in. It wasn't real light yet. And I was watching him for a while um, and I was having trouble deciding. I knew he was a buck and I knew he was a decent buck. But again, we have an eight point rule here. So I didn't want to shoot something that, uh, you know, maybe it was just a nice six or something like that. So, um, um, you know, but he was a good eight for us. Um, we've been chasing a deer for three years. That's uh, a 13 point up here. And we've had many, many encounters. Uh, no one's ever got a shot at him. And, uh, um, but, but we, we named him, uh, HFB, which was, uh, the holy fuck buck because <laughs> that, that was the reaction of the people when they first saw him on our, on our game cameras. And, um, but we've had, I've had situations where I'm sitting in one stand. We have a camera on another stand. He's out there in, 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 in daylight hours, uh, standing 20 feet from the stand, uh, we probably had encounters seven or eight times like that, but uh, he's still out there somewhere, and uh, maybe this will be the year. Oh man, that's that's hilarious! I know there are some there's some big deer up in your area um, that they can get pretty big. I guess they can pr get pretty big anywhere, uh, but at the same time, you guys have so much cover up there, and and just uh, they have the the area to get away and hide. Yeah, we do. We we don't have you know we don't grow the the deer that they get in southern Michigan. You know, obviously there isn't the amount of food, and the winters are a lot tougher up here but uh we do have a lot of a lot of activity we have a lot of bucks um since we went to that eight point rule we have a lot more mature bucks on the property and uh, um so that's worked out pretty good um, we do have a little issues with with poachers sometimes, and um, one of the probably the most interesting one was a few years back. Um, my wife and I are walking down the trail on an old logging road here, and we had a, a situation where we had a game camera up there, and I pull the chip and I go home, and we start looking at this these pictures, and it turns out that there's poachers on our property. We see a bunch of people, and and we're like, it's not like one or two, it's like seven or eight people. And we're going through these pictures one after another, and we see all these people milling around on this old logging road. And then finally, we see guys with dogs going in and guys with uh, um, four-wheelers. And then they come out with a with a bear on the four-wheeler, and they start partying right in front of the camera. Now, this camera's sitting there. It's not that well hidden. There's, at one point, I think I counted 16 people on our property admiring this bear, and they never saw the camera. And so I, I'm trying to find out like, who are these people? I got, I got, I got to figure it out. Cause I'm going to report this to the DNR. Or I'm going to do something. So I start calling my friends and I'm showing them pictures. You know, I got probably 40 pictures of, of various people and nobody knows who they are. So I decided that I was going to go into Roger Sid to the local and ask there, because if somebody shot a bear, I have to take it into the DNR check station. So I go there and I'm showing pictures and they're acting kind of strange. 
strange. And no, we don't know. We don't know anything about it. Uh, no, nobody's brought that bear in here. And so I got out of there and I remember I picked up my phone. I called my wife and I said, for some reason, they know something and they're not telling me. So then I went to the local bar here and started showing the pictures. And I went to a local business and it didn't take too long before they started recognizing all these people. And I later found out that the reason they didn't um, identify any of them in the uh, in the in the town was because they were involved with it. Can you get, can you send us or, or meet us and give us that chip? Because they're very skeptical. And I said, not only can I give you the chip, I can tell you the names of the people. So the DNR took the chip. They took the names of the people. And it turned out there were pictures starting to show up on Facebook of this bear once we knew who it was. It was over a 500-pound bear. Wow. I mean, that's a monster bear for up here and probably for pretty much anywhere in Michigan. Um, the DNR went to Dermis, got the bear. Um, they confiscated it. Um, they um, they then turned the case over to the prosecution here in the local town, and they were very reluctant to thing here. I didn't know why at the time, but I later found out that the prosecutor bear hunts with these guys. He wasn't involved in this particular incident, but they were all friends of his. And I, I kept pushing that, you know, something needs to happen here. And um, I ended up having to go to court to uh, to basically uh, speak directly to the judge on this thing. Um, and they did they did give them some uh, pretty stiff fines and uh, um, uh, a couple of them lost their hunting privileges for a year. Um, but uh, it was a pretty funny incident because, like I say, I, I'm showing these pictures all around town and. I'm actually turned out I'm showing the pictures to some of the guys that were were involved in it and uh, and and now you know we they're neighbors of ours and I didn't we get along pretty well now and so there's really no issues but uh, we did have uh, the poaching incident that uh, people still ask me about. <laughs> that's a that's a great story and well done on the detective work there, Bill, to to find that out. You know I don't really have any. Um, sympathy for trespassers so i i appreciate where you're coming from on that and uh yeah way to, way to track it down yeah i'm walking around town with all these uh printouts of pictures and showing them to random people and uh, anybody that i knew but uh yeah there were it turned out there was over 20 people involved and uh um you know the dogs uh, they confiscated the bear and so uh, the guys were uh weren't too happy at the time that uh that i pursued it that much but uh i wasn't gonna let that go i wasn't oh. Good for you. Well, Bill, I have a couple of things left here. I want to get through our, our rapid fire questions, and then I want to hear about your books um, as well. So I know if, if anybody has enjoyed the podcast so far, you're going to enjoy the books because you can tell you know a lot about the guy who who wrote them by the by the way he's telling great stories in this podcast. So, Bill, I'm going to hit you with a quick set of questions if you're ready, and then we'll we'll wrap this thing up. Okay, let's do it. All right, your favorite beverage at Deer Camp? Oh, mine would probably be a a nice cold draft beer out of our keg that's uh that's probably my number one great how about your favorite venison recipe or camp recipe um i like to marinate venison in um in a in a nice uh, uh brown bourbon brown sugar marinade and so i like to do that um probably my favorite camp recipe is uh i do that quite often up here and it always goes over very big so uh that's probably number one favorite and what was that recipe the camp one it's a uh, teriyaki salmon Awesome. Wow. All right. And how about fixed blade or mechanical broadheads when you're bow hunting? Um, I've been using mechanical for uh, about five, six years now. I like mechanical. I've you used Ray. I've got severs this year, so I'm trying them out. Okay. Very nice. Is your property set up with mostly uh, preset tree stands, blinds, or do you guys use a lot of climbers? What are you guys doing up there? Yeah, we um, it's set up mainly with uh, tree stands uh, for bow hunting. Uh, we do have some ground blinds. We built a few extra ones this year. Um but more tree stands and grind blinds. And then the actual hunting out here um, during rifle season is is pretty much done out of uh, uh, permanent blinds. So we've got guys that have hunted out of a certain blind for 20 years. And so uh, um, we don't we don't do any of the uh, uh, mobile hunting um, tends to be an older crowd. So, you know, they're not probably uh, as anxious to go up on a lone wolf uh, uh but we 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 uh we mainly hunt tree stands and uh um and like I say these permanent blinds that have been here a long time. Okay, would you say food, water, or cover is most important to you? Absolutely, food for us. As as I mentioned, that's uh that's what they don't have. They have plenty of water. They have plenty of cover. 
but food is king out here. All right, your favorite habitat tool or implement. Hmm. I do have the habitat hook and you know, I, I love that when I'm doing hinge cutting or things like that. As far as the mechanical implements, um, I bought a, a woods compact super cedar planter um, three years ago. And it really works nice for small food plotting like we have. You know, it's basically, it's got two bins on it so that I can put small seed in one and big and and big seed in the other. And um, it's got a cul de packer and it's got a little disc on the front. So basically it goes through, it dis it discs up the soil. You can adjust the disc for how much uh disturbance you want to do. And then uh, from there it comes through and uh drops seed and then comes back with the cul de packer and covers it up. Um, so it, it works really good for small operation like we do. Very nice. And last but not least, your favorite tree. Um, my favorite tree would probably be a tamarack tree. I, I love them. They, they, they hold their needles. Um, they tend to grow along uh, in the wet areas and stuff like that. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to vote for Tamarack. Awesome, Bill. Well, that was it. You passed to the rapid fire question segment. So thanks for that. I, uh, Truly enjoyed this conversation here today. I do too. And like I say, I, I enjoy your podcast. I I think I told you before, but I, I started listening uh, when Jake Ellinger was on. And I think the very first one, and I've been to Jake's place and uh, um, to have it. What I like about it is the fact that I enjoy, you know, hearing stories of guys going out and how they harvested a big buck. But until you came on, there really wasn't anything about habitat. And I want to learn something. And so listening to most but not all of the episodes that you've done i pick something up almost every time and i just appreciate the fact that there's somebody out there focused on on habitat where you know at the end of an hour you can walk away saying all right i know something now that i didn't know before so uh you know when you when you said hey come on for a few minutes and talk i'm thrilled because i i really like the like the podcast well thank you that was very nice of you to say and i really appreciate your your loyal listenership um you did a great job today honestly i really enjoyed that i, I knew it would be a great conversation after reading the, your first book let's hear about how people can can find you and your books um feel free to plug away my friend oh well i wrote two books um mainly during the the covid shutdown and i, I started writing them up by camp and i really did it because it wasn't i didn't think i was going to sell the books but the idea was is that we have so many stories over the years here and there's so much history um and i'm the only one that knows most of it um my cousins are out of state and um they really haven't been able to spend the amount of time that I have out here. And so there's all these rich stories from my grandfather's days, my dad's days, and I wanted to get them down on paper just so uh, they wouldn't be lost. So I, I wrote the first book and people seem to really enjoy the book. It got great, great uh, reviews. And can you write a second one? So I wrote a second one about our camp and I learned a few things and I really started enjoying this stuff. And so I started, uh, writing fiction and i like to keep it tied to the to the hunting camp so the book that i have that is just coming out now it's a fiction book it's a mystery but the setting is a hunting camp so the it's basically three brothers that own a hunting camp in a rural michigan area and a hunter goes out to the woods on opening day to hunt and he doesn't come back and it turns out that the guys go out there and find him dead in the woods. Um, and the medical examiner thinks that it's a death by natural causes, but there are events that start to happen that make one of the brothers, um, who's a wildlife photographer named Jeff Kohler, think that there's nefarious uh, things going on here. So um, the book is called The Landman. And uh, I think like particular people that are into hunting and the hunting communities We'll enjoy it. It's got a lot of, I think, fairly humorous dialogue. It's real. It, it tells you what it's really like in a hunting camp the night before season. A lot of banter back and forth. I think some interesting characters. And um, so anyway, that that book is just coming out right now. There's another one, the second uh, version of that book, uh, book two in the series. It's going to be called The Cedar Savages. And that one will come out in about a month, too. So. Um, 
if anybody has an interest, uh, it's a good deal. It's a good book to take to the deer blind. That's what I always, I used to find myself, I want to go to the blind and days get kind of long. I'll sit almost all day, opening day usually. Um, so I like to have a good book. And um, so it'd probably be a pretty good book for somebody to take out in the blind with them. But it's called The Landman. It's available on Amazon. Uh, you can go there right now and pre-order the, the ebook. And the print book will be out on the 20th of October. And so, um, you know, and then as kind of a, a promo for that, one of the things that we decided to do is um, a lot of people have expressed interest in kind of an old camp like this. So we decided to offer a, uh, a hunt up here. And it's the second weekend in October. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to bring uh, the winter up here and we're going to cover everything. It's going to be a free hunt if they want to hunt or if they maybe they want to bring their wife and just enjoy the fall colors. But we're going to put them up here for a couple of days, cover all their meals and everything. And um, we're running a contest for that right now on my, my uh, website, which is... Uh, uh, BillFriedrichAuthor.com. And so anyway, uh, we're going to do a drawing on October 20th for that. So if there's anybody that uh, would enjoy doing that, um, they can they can find that and uh, get in and maybe win a free weekend up at Singing Hills. That sounds great. You said the drawing would be October or September 20th. September 20th. I'm sorry. Thanks for correcting no me. Problem. <laughs> no if problem. No problem. It's a little bit late in the, in the uh, game. No, that's that's a cool idea. We've we've discussed some some similar things with with listener hunts here from the podcast, and we'll eventually be rolling something like that out. So it's cool to see you doing that. And man, I'd come up to that camp. That camp looks awesome. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put your website in the show notes of the episode. So if anybody's listening, they can just scroll right down, go right to the website, enter the contest, buy a book, etc. So well, I appreciate that. And like I said, I've, I've enjoyed doing it, and. Uh... Um, it's always, it's always fun to get a chance to talk about, uh, hunting habitat, deer camps and stuff like that. So, uh, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Of course, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to the Habitat Podcast. Guys, we will be back with another great episode next week. I just want to say once again, how grateful we are for the listenership we have and the, the loyal listeners you guys have been and supporters of the podcast. For those of you who want to support further. We have free decals being sent out to those who leave us great reviews. Scroll down, hit the link to leave a great review, and then email me info at habitatpodcast.com. I'll get you a free five-inch decal in the mail right away. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors. Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Exodus Outdoor Gear. Packer Max Cultipackers. Morse Nursery. Acres.com. Downburst Cedars. First Light. United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.